garrison in us uh, for the task that he's called us to. Mark chapter 4, and I'm going to begin reading at verse 2. Jesus taught them many things by parables, and in his teaching said, listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed, and he was scattering the seed. Some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprung up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no roots. Other seeds fell amongst the thorns, which grew up and choked the plants, so they did not bear grain. Still others fell on good soil. It came up, grew, and produced a crop, some multiplying 30, some 60, and some 100 times. Then jump down to verse 13. Then Jesus said to them, don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? The farmer sows the word. Some people are like the seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others, like seed sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others, like seed sown among the thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desire for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, like the seed sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop some 30, some 60, some a hundred times what was sown. Let's pray. Lord, we pray as we come to your word this morning, we pray that you would be with us. We pray that you would instruct us. We pray that you would illuminate the truths uh, of these scriptures in our lives in order that they may bear fruit 30, 60, and a hundredfold. And all God's people said... In Mark chapter 4, what we see is Jesus instructing us towards fruitfulness. The context here in Mark chapter 4 is that Jesus is gathering those that are interested in him. In chapter 2 and 3, we see people that ought to have been interested in Jesus ultimately rejecting him. But here in chapter 4, these are the people that are interested in him and are leaning into him. And it's to these very people that Jesus begins to instruct. And he instructs them towards fruitfulness. God's desire is that we would be fruitful in our lives. Quite amazingly, he says here, that if we really apply the things that he's teaching in our lives, we will bear fruit 30, 60, and 100-fold times. Now, a, a good crop uh, in this agricultural setting would be a crop that was a tenfold crop. So when Jesus is speaking about bearing fruit 30, 60, and 100-fold, what he is talking about is a super abundant crop. God is wanting us to so believe him and so trust him and so connect with him that we would actually bear phenomenal, super abundant fruit for him. And whilst he cast this vision for fruitfulness, he nevertheless 
casted in a context of organic growth. This isn't mechanical. What Jesus is teaching us about isn't if you do X, Y, and Z, then this is going to work out. Just, just like a good gardener knows that they can do certain things that can actually aid growth, but the actual means by which a growth takes place. The germination of a, a particular plant or crop is a, is, is a supernatural activity. Even the most sophisticated gardener on the planet doesn't have the actual capacity uh, to produce the germinating. It, it, it's something that God gets to do. And yet, in this context, Jesus speaks about certain environments that we can create in our lives that make it more conducive for the supernatural work of God to take place in our lives. And so, in this passage, we see uh, three big hindrances uh, that uh, Jesus speaks about, five in total, but I'll I'll bracket the final three uh, under one heading, that are hindrances uh, to fruitfulness. The first hindrance that Jesus highlights in Mark chapter 4 is the reality of Satan. Notice in verse 15, as soon as they hear the word, Satan comes and takes the word that was sown in them. C.S. Lewis once famously noted that there are two equally opposite mistakes people make when it comes to the topic of Satan and the devil. Either they disbelieve in his existence or they have an unhealthy interest in him. Lewis says that people have, uh, have these, these equally opposite mistakes. The devil doesn't mind uh, because he loves both mistakes equally. We, we, we either, we either uh, are the materialist who ignores the very existence of the devil uh, at all, or we are magicians. We are uh, we, we, we see the devil behind everything. And the devil doesn't really mind which mistake we make. He, he, he doesn't matter if we see the devil in everything or if we see the devil in nothing. As, as I speak to you this morning, what are you, when I mention the word Satan or the devil, what are you more likely to think of? Are you more likely to think, I'm, I'm, I'm really glad he's talking on this topic. This is so important. We don't talk enough about the devil. And are you the person that sees the devil everywhere? Finally, somebody's going to talk about this. Or it's like, Really? I gave up a Saturday morning to hear somebody talk about the devil. You must be kidding. Are we going back to the medievals? You know, what's what's happening next? Seriously? But what we discover here is that this is Jesus Christ himself instructing us towards fruitfulness, and one of the ways that we get tripped up in fruitfulness is by not considering the reality of Satan. What is interesting is when we open up the Bible, the person that we discover the most talking about Satan is, in fact, Jesus himself. Jesus himself teaches us to pray in Matthew 6, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And Jesus himself practiced what he preaches, because in John 17, verse 15, he says, my prayer is not that you would take them out of the world, but that you would protect them from the evil one. I just want to ask you, do you pray like this? When was the last time you prayed, lead me not into temptation and deliver me from the evil one? When was the last time you prayed to God for protection from the devil? Jesus prayed for protect for the people that he was responsible for. He prayed that they would be protected from the evil one. Do you pray like that? 
Or are you the materialist? This is utter nonsense. Why would I, honestly, why would I pray like that at all? This is 2018. I mean, come on, get real. We all know that the real enemy is the Russians. What are you talking about? <laughs> Dave Devinish, in his uh, excellent book on spiritual warfare, says that when dealing with the devil and spiritual warfare, there are three important truths that we, hold, we need to hold in tension. The first is that God is sovereign. The Bible paints a picture of God as being all-powerful and all authority belonging to Him. We do not live in a dualistic universe where equally matched powers of good and evil are wrestling for supremacy. No, no, no. There's no doubt about the fact that God is sovereign and in charge. So that's the first truth we need to embrace. The second truth that we need to embrace is that we are personally responsible. So when you go out this afternoon and try and buy something on your credit card and it bounces, this isn't a demonic attack from the devil. You have overspent. You've spent too much money. That's why your credit card is bouncing. When your child fails the examination, it's not a demonic assault on your family. It's probably because your child didn't study enough. We we are personally responsible. But the third truth that we need to hold is that the devil and the demonic world are real. Many of us here this morning, maybe most of us here this morning, have been brought up in a so-called scientific or rational worldview. Under this system, seeing is believing. If we can't see it or prove it, it doesn't exist. But the problem with this worldview is that it exalts intellectual analysis above the Word of God. The Bible teaches that The physical and spiritual worlds are equally real, both created by God. To ignore the spiritual world is to really ignore large sections of the Bible. Cranfield uh, writes in a former generation, the greatest achievement of the powers of evil would be to persuade us that they do not exist. Terry Virgo, or was it John Hosier said, life isn't like a war, it is a war. All of us here this morning are engaged in a spiritual battle, whether we are aware of it or not. You are in a spiritual battle. You say, what are you talking about? You're mad. No, I'm not. It's the truth. You may not be aware of it, but you are in a spiritual battle. And if you're a leader here, you're definitely in a spiritual battle, The message of the Bible isn't that the the more involved you get for God and the more committed you get to God, the less spiritual attacks there are. No, no, no. I I think you could actually argue the opposite. Remember Job chapter 1. The devil comes to God and says, hey, check out your servant Job. He's really awesome. He's really phenomenal. He's really godly. But I guess he's just really committed to you because you've really blessed him and his life is really full. And God says, okay, well, you can, you, can, you can take some stuff away and you'll see that this dude is going to remain faithful to me. So there was this guy who's a full-on God follower, fully devoted, and because of that, Satan becomes aware of him. And then Job has this kind of demonic onslaught. For some people, that ch- chapter in the Bible is very chilling, For me, I find it quite comforting because I know I will never 
as a result of my own godliness ever draw the attention of Satan. I'll never come up to the top of the pile that they go, hey, look at Stephen, look how amazing he is. So I, I, I take some comfort from that. That's a joke, guys. <laughs> so we've got Job. Then we've we, then we got the situation with Peter, remember, in Luke 22, verse 31. Satan comes, uh, uh, Jesus says to Peter, hey, sa Satan's asked, you, asked me to uh, sift you like wheat. And like if I'm Peter, it's like, and, and you said no, right? You said no. It's, it's like when your kids, they want to ask you for something and you, you say no, and like no's no. It doesn't matter how many times you ask, it's, it's still no. Jesus says to Peter, Satan's come to me and he's asked me to sift you like wheat. And if I'm Peter, I'm saying, please tell me you said no. But Jesus says to him, but don't worry, I've prayed for you. And when you've come through this, strengthen your brothers. Wow. Or what about Paul? Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 verse 17 says the following. He says, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. So 2 Corinthians chapter 12 would seem to indicate that there can be a personalized, specific attack. And friends, we are not to be unaware of this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 11, Paul says we are not to be outwitted by Satan, and we are not to be unaware of his schemes. Friends, I think uh, some people kind of respond to the reality of Satan and the devil kind of like uh, the way I, I kind of relate to lions. In, um, in 2001, I had the privilege of conducting a, uh, a, a wedding of two individuals that uh, began courting while at university in Cape Town and went to Jubilee, and they kindly asked me to do their wedding, and so I went up uh, to their farm in Gweru in Zimbabwe, and there were uh, two kind of um, houses. One was the main house, and the other one was a guest house, and I was staying in the guest house, and they were about uh, 800 meters to a kilometer apart, and uh, I was in the main house just doing some uh, final details for the wedding the next day, and then we finished up, and then I was walking uh, to, the, to the guest house. And uh, as, I, as I was walking to the guest house, uh, I just stopped in the moment because I heard something that was utterly chilling. In fact, the, the thing that I heard caused the, the hairs on my arm to, to, to stand on end. I heard a lion stalking me through the long grass. I just like heard it and then I like instantly stopped. My hair instantly stood on end and then I just completely became calm and I walked to the guest house. What had happened was I had accurately heard that a lion was stalking me through the long grass, but when I stopped to think about it, I remembered that on this farm, they were, had a world-renowned lion rehabilitation center, and in fact, these lions were in these huge cages so although I could hear a lion stalking me, I realized, oh, they're behind the cage. It's fine, I'm, I'm, I'm totally cool. And so I just carried on walking. And so many Christians I know relate to the devil like the, like the lion's caged. 
It doesn't matter. <laughs> Whatever. You know, I'll just carry on. I'm, I'm, I'm perfectly fine. I don't, I don't really need to take this seriously. But Peter says to us, be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for somebody to devour. Friends, the reality is that Satan is at work in our lives. And what I'm going to ask folk to do is just to hand out a message that I gave on spiritual warfare for you guys to take home. Uh, a couple of years ago, uh, a fellow elder myself reviewed uh, three book, uh, four books on spiritual warfare, mainly written by Puritans, C.S. Lewis and uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, and we reviewed them to look at what are some of the key ways that Satan would actually try and uh, have a go at us. And as we studied these books, we discovered three main areas. The first area was temptation. The second area was accusation. And the third area was isolation. Temptation, accusation, and isolation. And friends, I just want to ask you this morning, what is the area that you are tempted in? And does anybody know about it? What is the area that Satan is accusing you in? I know that he is accusing you because the Bible tells us that he accuses day and night. What is that area? And does anybody know about it? Friends, if you're in a situation where you're being tempted, but nobody knows about it, or you've been accused day and night, but nobody knows about it, you're in a very vulnerable situation because when you're isolated, you are super vulnerable to being taken out. One of the wonders about being part of the church of Jesus Christ is that we can be in a context where people can know us and love us and care for us and stand with us. Friends, if you look in the West today, the amount of increase of depression and suicide that is on a rampant increase as our society becomes more and more isolated because we just become free game for the enemy. If you ever watched any documentaries around some of uh, the predatorial cats, they'll say that the strategy for the predatorial cats is as follows, is they are, they are very committed to getting one animal off the herd isolated because their potential of taking down an individual animal out of a herd is much greater than the whole herd. They said there's a very um, unusual phenomenon that happens that when you uh, look at a whole group of people or a whole herd and you try and attack them, what you do is you actually just attack the herd, not an individual. And that kind of two-second adjustment where you realize, I'm just running at a herd, but now they're all scattering, and you haven't actually focused on one, that that kind of two-second gap gives the herd the time that they need to get away. And so what some of these cats do is they just they start chasing a herd, they just get the herd running until there's, there's one in the herd that is weaker and just gets drawn off the pack, and then they attack the individual, and their success rate is massively increased. 
Friends, one of the things that Satan is wanting to do in your life is he's wanting to drive you into isolation. He's, he's wanting to unhitch you from Christian community because it's in the context of isolation that you can become the playground for the enemy. And friends, this happens at every level of Christianity. If you're a brand new Christian here, one of the things that Satan wants to do is just to get you to move away from the church. C.S. Lewis has a beautiful quote there. C.S. Lewis says one of the strategies of the enemy is just the orderliness of Christians. Like you become a new Christian and you go to church and you just notice so-and-so who really dresses really shabbily. And you notice this other person who can't sing properly. And it's just like the orderliness of Christians. It's like, ah, I just, I just want to get away from this. It's one of the strategies of the enemy. But you don't have to have a, be a new Christian to find Satan wanting to isolate you. You can be a part of an eldership team and Satan's doing exactly the same thing. There's, there's, there's just like a little bit of a grit in the team and there's, people aren't just quite finding each other, but nobody's honest enough to talk about it. And so individuals on the team just become isolated from the team. And then issues can take place. It can happen at a whole church level. The reason why we do an event like this is we believe that there's great power and protection when local churches link arms together to advance. When local churches become isolated, they become vulnerable to the attacks of the enemy. So what we're gonna do in a moment is we're gonna be Skyping with a guy in North Carolina whose city got hit by a hurricane. That pastoral team were like super smart because they had built partnerships with churches around the world so that when your city gets hit by a hurricane, you're not the only person praying. We're gonna pray for that in the moment. What, what, what's going on there? It's us linking arms in order to protect a local community from a, a set of devastating events. Friends, when you get isolated, you become vulnerable. Jesus is saying, heads up guys, Satan's real. And some people don't even get out the blocks. It's like the moment the word is sown, it gets stolen, and they don't bear the fruit that Christ intends. Friends, it is very critical that we log this. The second thing that we see here in Mark chapter four is what I'm calling the trouble with trouble. The trouble with trouble. Notice verses 16 and 17. Others, like seen sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. I just want to suggest to you that verses 16 and 17 of Mark chapter 4 are just incredible. Incredible for Jesus' directness and boldness. Jesus, in two short verses, tells us first about the reality of trouble. Jesus brings up the topic. Notice he says, when. When. So he brings up the topic of trouble. He highlights the certainty of trouble by saying when, not if. And then he also tells us the source of trouble because of the word. Jesus tells us trouble is, there is a reality of trouble, there is a certainty of trouble, and the source of the trouble is the very word of God. Now friends, this is a million miles away from the prosperity gospel. 
The prosperity gospel says the following. If you really put God's word into practice, then your life is gonna be prosperous and everything is gonna be fine. But Jesus says, when trouble or persecution comes because of the word, because of obeying the word of God, trouble and persecution is coming your way. This is a direct contradiction to the prosperity gospel. And it's amazing that Jesus in Mark chapter four is talking about us not bearing the fruit that God intended by suppressing the word of God. And yet we, we really wanna suppress this. We wanna push back and say, no, Jesus, you don't understand theology. You don't know how it works. This is wrong. By embracing your word, everything goes swimmingly. I get the BMW, I get the private jet, I get the wife that I want. What are you talking about? This is wrong, repent. But actually, Jesus knows what he's doing. And in fact, if you study Mark chapter four, I wanna suggest to you that this whole issue of the reality of trouble because of following Jesus is actually one of the main points of chapter four because, because Jesus says, hey dudes, just wake up. If, you, if, 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 you, if you're applying my word, trouble's coming your way. And they're going like, awesome. And maybe you think a very good point. I, I, this, this, this is so balanced. I love this. That's what I love about advance. Maybe that's what they're thinking about. But then they leave the message, it's like he finishes and they clap and then they get on the boat and then they hit a storm. And Jesus is sleeping and he's got the cushion, he's got the only cushion. (laughs) Jesus is in business class, they're in economy, he's asleep, they're hitting turbulence and they can't handle it. These are trained fishermen, they think they're gonna die and when they wake Jesus up, what do they say? Teacher, save us. Teacher, rescue us. No. They wake Jesus up and say, teacher, don't you care? What was freaking them out wasn't pending death, but actually a seemingly insincere savior. Don Carson puts it like this. He says, one of the major causes of devastating grief and confusion amongst Christians is that our expectations are false. We do not give the subject of evil and suffering the thought it deserves until we ourselves are confronted with tragedy. If by that point our beliefs, not well thought through but deeply ingrained, are largely out of step with God, then the pain of the personal tragedy may be multiplied many times over as we begin to question the very foundations of our faith. Do you get what Don Carson is saying? He's saying, when you hit a trouble, what can happen is that you can be hit by a double whammy. The first punch is the right punch, which is the actual pain from the tragedy that you're experiencing. Something terrible happens in your life and and, and you get hit by the right hand and you're going through this very difficult time. But he says the thing that actually knocks you out is the left punch. And the left punch is, if you haven't thought about evil and suffering and tragedy because of following Jesus, then it's the left punch as you begin to question the very foundations of your faith. And friends, so many Christians that I know live according to this equation. They've struck this deal. This is the equation that they live by. If I follow God wholeheartedly, then I get a carefree, trouble-free life. If I follow God wholeheartedly, if I give Him my best, if it's God first, then it's a carefree, trouble-free life. And if you believe that, then when you hit the difficulty because of following God, you not only have the pain of the tragedy, but you have the pain of questioning 
whether God is really faithful to His promises. Because it's like, hey, God, I thought we had the deal. I put you first, I honor you, I love you, and then you give me the carefree, trouble-free life. And friends, that's exactly what goes on in Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4, these guys hit the storm, not because they're running away from God. Mark chapter 4 isn't Jonah. It isn't like God's called me to do something, and then I'm going to run in the exact opposite direction, and I hit a storm because God is chastening me from ignoring me. No, 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 no. What we have in Mark chapter 4 is we encounter the storm precisely because we are following Christ. I became the Christian, but because of that, I'm 35 and I'm still single. Or I became the Christian and all of a sudden at work, I became a little bit odd to everybody and I got overlooked for the promotion. Friends, Tim Keller says, how you respond when you hit difficulty and tragedy reveals what you believe. He says, Christians who become angry when they hit suffering become angry because they actually are people who have embraced moralism. They haven't embraced the gospel. Moralism is if I do my, my good behavior, I earn favor with God. God owes it to me to bless my life. And when he doesn't bless my life, I get angry. How how dare you? How dare you? And actually, the beautiful thing of the Bible is the Bible's full of people that go, how dare you? A couple of weeks' time, we're going to at Jubilee be teaching through Ruth. That's Naomi. How dare you? I went away full and I've come back empty. The Lord has afflicted me. The Lord has brought damage upon me. She is angry. And she knows the source of her pain. The source of her pain is, God, it's your fault. How dare you? And actually, the beautiful thing in the book of Ruth is, while, while uh, Naomi's ranting, God's busy redeeming because the next verse says, and it was the start of the, the barley harvest, and that begins the whole cycle of redemption. So even when we have our little tantrums, God's ignoring us. <laughs> it's like your two-year-old, I hate you! It's like, Whatever. You can end the tantrum, and then I'm going to give you a hug. I love you. I've adopted you. You can have bad theology. It's not going to separate you from my love. I'm doing a good work. And at the end, you'll look back, and you'll thank me, and you'll understand me that it's all of God, and it's all of grace. Friends, the vision that Jesus Christ creates for life is way bigger than the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel only makes sense if my life's going well. But the vision that we get of God is that he's the God of all things and that he can even turn the bad things in our lives and he can turn them for good. In Genesis, we find Joseph saying the following things in terms of describing his life. He said, it is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. It is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. I just want to suggest to you that that verse in Genesis is an amazingly, emotionally complex sentence. 
The Lord has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. Let's just think about Joseph's story for a moment. Is this a true statement? Did he experience suffering? Well, remember, he was sold into slavery by his brothers. My own personal family uh, wasn't brought up in a Christian home. My family's pretty shot through a lot of dysfunction, but I'm really glad to say that as bad as my upbringing was, I wasn't sold into slavery. This, this is pretty low, correct? Your own siblings selling you into slavery. But what does Joseph do? He continues to believe God. He continues to trust God. He continues to be faithful to God. And what was his reward? A BMW, a big house, a wonderful wife. No, falsely accused of rape, wrongly imprisoned. Does he stop believing God? No, he still believes that God is working and he amazingly interprets a dream supernaturally by a gift of God. What happens? Everything works out okay? No, he's overlooked and spends two more years in prison. And then he lives the rest of his life as a foreigner, always feeling like he was an outsider. So he definitely experienced suffering. But was he fruitful? Absolutely. He was fruitful in Potiphar's house. He was fruitful in prison. He becomes second in command in Egypt, the biggest superpower of his day. He gets married. He has children. He was fruitful. God made him fruitful in the land of his suffering. And friends, it may be that today you're going through great difficulty. And you think the thing that really needs to happen for you to become fruitful is for the suffering to stop. If only this nightmare could end, then you could get on with really serving God and loving Jesus. But I just want to tell you this morning that across this planet, the greatest stories of fruitfulness are being written by people who are going through great agony and yet still love Jesus and still put him first. A number of years ago, uh, myself and Jeremy Hansen, a, a fellow elder, drove an hour and a half to uh, see a uh, lady of 32 who was single, who had grown up in our church, who had faithfully followed Jesus, and it was in the final stage of cancer. She was staying with her father in Hermanus, and we, we drove out to see her, to pray for her, and comfort her. And actually, when we got to see her, um, the moment was really overwhelming, because Salve herself really wasn't interested in us praying for her. She really wanted to pray for us. And this was a woman who put God first, loved him all her life, never got married, never had kids, was going to die by the end of the week. And what she wanted to do was she wanted to pray for us. And I really ought to have taken my shoes off because I felt like I was on holy ground. Because friends, when you're in your final week, of life, you can't fake it. 
there's either some reality to your relationship with Jesus Christ and you really believe that death isn't the end, but life exists beyond the grave, or you don't. And Salve, while she was in agony and pain, wasn't thinking about herself, she was thinking about us. And I just thought, how is it possible that I get to lead somebody that is so vastly more mature than I am? It's utterly ridiculous when I think about the silly, petty things in my life that I feel like are good excuses why my joy in Christ should be robbed. And a 32-year-old is dying of cancer with no bow at the end. And she's thinking about others. And friends, one of the huge privileges that I've got is to visit churches in situations that are incredibly tough, life situations that are incredibly challenging. And their love for Christ and their devotion to Christ and their commitment to the cause of Christ is phenomenal. And I'm living in Disneyland and I'm a moaner and a groaner and these people are celebrating the goodness and grace of God. Friends, we think when our life gets padded out, that's gonna cause us to flourish, that's gonna cause us to bear fruit. No, no not necessarily. In fact, what Jesus gets onto is that there's stuff that's actually gonna choke out the very work of God, which is the deceitfulness of wealth. Wealth itself is gonna come and it's actually gonna spiritually suffocate you because you're gonna think that money's gonna be able to do what God can do. Money makes God promises. If you've got me, you're gonna be happy. If you've got me, you're gonna be secure. If you've got me, I can open up your destiny and no, it can't. And the churches that are prosperous and wealthy and have got so much stuff just lack a spiritual vitality in who Jesus Christ is and being caught up on their mission. Why? Because wealth has actually choked out the very reality of God. Jesus said these thorns are coming out and and then they're choking you. It's the worries of this world. It's the deceitfulness of wealth. It's the desire for other things. And when you read that, you can just think Jesus is just saying, well, you know, et cetera. But the desire for, for other things is, is the Greek word epithemia. It's, it's over-desires. They're, they're, they're good things that you've made ultimate things. They're, they're good things that you've made God things. They're these over-desires that have taken over your life. Instead of orientating your life on Jesus Christ and his plans and his purposes and the advance of his kingdom, instead of bearing fruit for God, you've allowed good things to become ultimate things. You've had over-desires. Your job's become such a big thing. Is, is work a good thing or a bad thing? It's a good thing. God wants us to work. God wants you to be excellent at your work. But when your work becomes an ultimate thing, when your whole life is orientated around your work and all your relationships become frayed, your relationship with God, your relationship with your family and friends because work becomes all-encompassing, then it isn't a good thing, it's a bad thing. It's become an over-desire. Or or, or your family, like you want your kids to flourish. Is it good to want to invest in your kids and cause them to do well? Absolutely. 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 But when kids become all-encompassing, then they become gods, and they, they determine everything. 
or some hobby. Is a hobby a good thing or a bad thing? Hobbies are good things. God's created us to have fun and enjoy ourselves. But when our hobby becomes everything, when our hobby gets our first priority, where we, our church commitments or family commitments and always become secondary and of third importance to us, it becomes a problem. Friends, what's the area of your over-desire? One of the ways that you can look at your over-desire is your uncontrolled emotion, which is what Jesus speaks about. He speaks about emotion of worry. What you're worried about. It's interesting that Jesus highlights worry because I want to suggest to you that worry is the most acceptable sin uh, in Christianity. If you were part of a small group and they went around the group and said, how's your week been? And you said, well, you know, it's been a bit, bit of a tough week, tough week, I've kind of fornicated this week. Or somebody else says, well, I got drunk. Uh, you know, it hasn't been a great week. Uh, you know, I kind of ran out of money and I had to steal some stuff in order to get by. Any of those responses would cause a bit of a shock. You know, even if they don't show it internally, everybody's going, did that person just really say they stole something? Did somebody really say they fornicated? I really? But if you're, if you're in a small group and said, how, how was your week? And it's just like, it's been a really tough week. You know, I'm just really worried about so many things. It's really, and, and then you mention out your worries everybody's leaning in. It's like, oh, I'm so, come, 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 come. Let, let, let's, let's gather around and pray. This, let, you know, this, uh, <laughs> we, we feel empathy, right? Not, not, not correction, but, but actually worry is a sin. And, and worry's not, just not good because the Bible says so. In fact, a number of research now shows that worry is, is, is really not good for a number of decisions. If, you, if, you're, a, if you're a real warrior, then uh, the chances are you're going to make bad, uh, fear-based uh, decisions. Uh, worry itself has uh, many negative uh, health uh, effects. Medical research shows us that everything from high blood pressure, health disease, ulcers, and frequent illness can now be linked to worry. Uh, worry can kind of leave us with like deer in the headlights, paralyzed and unable to execute our daily responsibilities. And then Jesus himself speaks about, you know, how worry itself can choke out the very work of God. Now, I just know that I've been really mean to you because some of you are really worried about something. <laughs> and now I've just listed all the problems that worry itself can produce. And so now you've moved from just worrying about the thing that you're worrying about to worrying about all the consequences of worrying. And, and that wasn't very kind, and I just, I just, I just want to apologize for that. <laughs> But how many people know, if you really struggle with worry, that the way that you overcome worry isn't by being told to stop worrying? Have you, have you noticed that that counsel doesn't really help you? You already ought to stop worrying. And that doesn't really help. Why doesn't it help? It doesn't help because worry is a shoot, not a root. There's a reason why you're worrying. And the way that you determine your epithemia, your over-desire, is by analyzing your uncontrolled emotion. Jesus uses worry here, but you can analyze your anger as well. Whatever your uncontrolled emotion is. You see, most of us aren't worried about everything at this, equally at the same time. Most of us, when we're worrying, we're worrying about something in particular. So for some of you, the thing that you're worried about is what people are thinking about you. Because actually, your over-desire is, I really want people to think well of me. I really want to be thought well of. You, you've kind of got an approval addiction. And so when people don't think well of you, that's, that's the thing that, that really worries you. 
For others of you, it's like financial security. It's, it's like, like making sure that you've got enough money. That, that, that's the thing that worries you. And so what we discover is that worry is a shoot, not a root. And what we need to do to work out our epithemias, the things that are over, are over desires, is to pull up the shoot and to look at the root and then repent of a wrong root. Instead of trusting God, we trust in something else. Instead of, of getting our approval from God, we're looking at, it, at other people. Instead of getting our security in God, we're trying to get it in money. Instead of acknowledging that God is in control, we're trying to be in control. Friends, there is an offer here from Jesus Christ to bear fruit 30, 60, and 100-fold. But if we are to do that, we are going to have to be individuals that know the reality of Satan, that we know how to respond to trouble. We understand the trouble with trouble, and then we need to deal with these three little pigs. We need to deal with the worries of this life. We need to deal with the deceitfulness of wealth, and we need to deal with the desire for other things, the epithemias in our life. Let me pray for you. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you for each and every person here. I thank you that you love them with an everlasting love and that you're desirous that they bear fruit and fruit that will last. You're desirous that they bear a harvest 30, 60, 100-fold. Lord, I pray for any here that are experiencing a spiritual attack at this moment. Lord, I pray that they wouldn't remain in isolation. I pray that they would get help and they would get prayer. Lord, I pray for others that are experiencing trouble and the effect of that trouble is causing them to get angry at God because they're operating with the wrong paradigm. Lord, I pray that you would help us analyze our hearts to analyze our over-desires and to repent of them and turn to you to receive grace. I thank you that you say that my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. I thank you, Lord, that your desire for us is that we would bear fruit and fruit that will last. Lord, we pray for each individual, for every church represented here, for an application of your word that would cause them to bear fruit 30, 60, and 100-fold. Amen.